This is The Speaking Show. I'm David Newman, and you're tuned in to the number one podcast for speakers, consultants, and experts who want to speak more profitably. Well, I hope you're ready for this very special episode. My guest is the one, the only Derek Sivers. Welcome to The Speaking Show. Thanks, David. It's great to finally be here. I'm a fan of what you do. Well, we have so much great stuff to talk about. But before we jump into that, for the one or two people on the planet (laughs) who don't know who you are, could you give us the two-minute, quick, professional, personal summary of the Derek Sivers journey and what has brought you to where you are today? And we'll use that as the jumping point for our conversation. Sure thing. So... Really, at my core, I was just a musician. So ever since I was 14 years old, all I wanted was to be a successful musician. And I was a hustler. I moved to New York City and I did whatever it took to make a buck as a musician. So I ran a recording studio. I played guitar on people's albums. I toured with a Japanese pop star. And eventually I recorded my own album full of music. And this was uh, 2006. So it sold pretty well at gigs, but there was literally nowhere to sell it online. Like in 2006, 2007, there was not a single business on the internet anywhere that would sell your music if you didn't already have a record deal with the big major record labels. So I had to build my own thing. And this is also before PayPal existed and Amazon was just a bookstore. So I had to build my own shopping cart, get my own credit card merchant account. It took like $1,000 in setup fees and about three months of work copying examples out of books to build a shopping cart on my site. But after three months of hard work, I did it. And I had a buy now button on my band's website. But because it was so hard to do, all of my musician friends in New York City said, whoa, dude, could you sell my CD through your thing? So really just as a favor to friends, I started selling my friends' CDs on my band's website. And then that grew and friends told friends and pretty soon it was strangers. So I gave it its own name. I called it cdbaby.com. And it quickly became the largest seller of independent music on the web. with like a quarter million musicians. I eventually had 85 employees and a big giant warehouse. And after 10 years of doing that, I was feeling done. It was too big. I didn't enjoy it anymore. It wasn't making me happy anymore. So I was going to just quit. I was going to just do the Willy Wonka thing and put five golden tickets into five CDs somewhere and let some new little Charlie Bucket win the prize. But instead, on the advice of my wise friends, I sold the company instead and walked away to be a uh, whatever I am today. (laughs) Author, pop philosopher, random dude at large. Wow. Let's jump in because this is a perfect jumping off point for our first deep dive question. Our first deep dive question is how do you know when it's time? How do you know when it's time to make these shifts in your life with your family, in your professional situation, in your personal situation? What's that radar screen that you refer to when it's time to make a shift? I think if you are feeling overwhelmed, if you feel that you don't want to grow, that's a huge red warning light. I think if you're avoiding your inbox because you don't even want any new opportunities, that's a good sign. Overall, I think it's just when you're feeling done, like I think we have arcs in our life. We have chapters, we have sections. And I think you start to get a feeling when this chapter or this section of your life is done. So 
the next obvious question then is, so what do you do when you start to feel that? I think the best path that I've found, like the best path to the solution, I should say, is to start to vividly play out hypothetical scenarios, right? Like if you're feeling done, you might not be done yet. You have to ask yourself questions like, well, what if I were to increase my rates by 300% or 1000%? Like if I'm suddenly getting 10 times the income or charging 10 times as much, well, would I now be excited to get a new client? Ah, okay. So maybe it's not that you're done. Maybe you just need to charge more. Maybe you still like the mission you're on, but you would just like a different role inside of it. So maybe you're the public CEO of your little thing, but maybe you'd much rather just be behind the scenes and rebrand yourself as the CTO or CFO and get somebody that's more of a CEO to take the stage while you just kind of take the back end. Maybe you play out the hypothetical scenario of you sell your company and now you're retired. Like, does that excite you or does that drain you? Maybe you think about what if I were to move my family to somewhere radically new, like Hawaii or New Zealand or Singapore? What if I were to have a baby now and just be a full-time parent for a few years? You keep making these hypothetical scenarios for yourself and constantly asking yourself, like, does this excite me or does this drain me? Like, If you notice that one of these scenarios actually makes you like bolt up in your seat and makes your heart race with excitement, that's a bit of a clue as to what you uh, maybe should do next. So for me, when I sold CD Baby, I just felt done. I just felt like I had no more vision for the future. I had been doing nothing but this one thing for 10 years. And it felt like I had, you know, put the final sentence in my book or in that book, you know, like it just, I just felt done. So even selling the company didn't excite me. It wasn't that I wanted to sell. I actually kind of wanted to just quit. I I really liked the uh, Willy Wonka idea of just giving the whole thing away. I just wanted to be done with it. But because of that, I was lost for a good year or two after that. I would constantly think of all kinds of hypothetical scenarios, but everything just felt like, huh, yeah, mm, maybe. Until one day, I came up with one hypothetical scenario that like literally made me like, oh my God, like my heart started racing and I bolted up in my seat. I was just, I was filled with like, oh my God, yes, 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 yes. I want to do this. And it made me jump into action. And that's when you know you're onto something good is when it makes you jump into action. So um, ideally, sorry, to get back to your question, like, you know, making a shift in your life, ideally we could jump right into the new thing from our existing thing. But sometimes, and I guess in my case, you might need a little empty space in between. When you say, I just want to peel back one more layer of this because you said so many brilliant things in there, but I want to get back to the visualization, the vivid visualization of different scenarios. Because I think people listening are like, well, okay, what if I do this? What if I sell the company? What if I triple my rates? And you know, they'd look at that on a surface level. I'm guessing you have a deeper way to process that? Is it journaling? Is it meditating on it? Is it, you know, visualizing? Is there some emotional work that we need to do to really process that and to find out what we would feel like? Probably different people have different methods that work for them. I do write in my journal a lot, a lot, a lot. And especially at times of transition like that, I just, you know, three hours a day, my fingers are flying on the typewriter, just spelling out the scenarios. And I get into detail because I use the same method for making 
very concrete plans, whether I'm planning a trip or planning a business or programming or whatever, it's the same fingers on the same keyboard. So maybe because of that, all these hypothetical plans felt very real. Like I wouldn't just say, hmm, yeah, maybe I'd start an ostrich farm in Mongolia. Instead, I would get to the real nitty gritty. I'd like go research exactly how would I start this ostrich farm, (laughs) whatever it may be. I'd get into all the details. I'd start writing bullet lists. I'd do some research. Who would I have to call? Like I'd really put myself into this world. Like I'd go beyond the daydream. I'd actually turn it into a plan and make it feel viscerally real to me. Like this is my new reality. And what's important is to let it sit for a while because sometimes something may seem exciting on Tuesday and by Saturday you're over it. But the other thing I do a lot is just talking with friends because you can just stew in your own juices (laughs) to a fault. But if you just bounce ideas off of dear friends, they can often just ask you one killer question that makes you go, oh, good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, never mind that whole idea. You know, so... Yeah, conversations with friends and journaling is what works for me. For somebody else, something else, yeah. But really making it vivid, I think, is the advice, which I think is brilliant. Now, let's say that we're on a path. We're on a path. We're building our dream. We're excited. We have goals, maybe, hopefully. And a lot has been written about goals and goal setting. Do you believe in goals? And if yes, how do you think about it? And if no, how do you think about it? Hmm. I believe in goals only if they make you jump into action. I think that if a goal does not make you jump into action, then it's a bad goal. And the best thing you could do is to let it go. In fact, I think you should let go of every goal you can. Like ideally, let them all go. Every single one of those maybes and some days or like in my spare time kind of goals just euthanize them. (laughs) Humanely kill them because I think they're tearing you apart. I think most of us probably have like six different goals that we carry around with us at all times. And they, they tear us apart inside. They make us conflicted. You know, every time we see something written in French, we think, ah, God, I really do want to learn French. And you'd keep telling yourself that you want to do this. Yeah, you know, I am going to do that someday. And you think, you know, I want to make more videos. Whatever it may be, we have these goals. I think, no, you take those ones and you look at the fact that you haven't spent any time doing French. And there is always an hour. If you really wanted to find an hour, you would find that hour. You haven't been spending that hour. So no, euthanize that goal. Just tell yourself, all right, that was an X goal. I am no longer going to be learning French. And at some point in the future, you can change your mind when you're ready to give it your real attention. But no, one of the best things I ever did was to let go of all of my goals, except the one that you hate not doing. Like you actually try to kill that goal and it won't go down. (laughs) So yeah, that's my thought on goals. They have to turn into action. What a fantastic turn of phrase. I've heard of ex-wife. I've heard of (laughs) ex-husband. I've heard of ex-girlfriend. I've never heard of, oh, that was an ex-goal of mine. Yeah, we go way back. We go way back. (laughs) Not anymore, though. Not anymore. That's an ex-goal. Hey, good looking. Are you currently getting paid to speak? Would you like to ramp that up? We can help. Book a confidential speaker strategy call with our team at doitmarketing.com slash call, and let's see what we might do together. The call is free, 
but the results may be priceless. Well, you have some amazing ideas in the books that you've written, and I want to pick up on one of them. You write that the whole point of doing anything is to be happy. So do only what makes you happy. And to me, that seems like a really big luxury. How do you suggest that most average folks implement that advice? (laughs) Just the fact that that seems like a luxury makes me really sad that you just said that. Because, okay, let's start from scratch. Whether you're 18 years old or 48 years old, let's just start from scratch and say that you have no debts. So we can just start there, okay? No matter what else is going on, as long as you're debt-free, you could, for example, move to Pittsburgh, a fine city, good cheap cost of living, good bang per buck. You could rent a three-bedroom apartment for $1,000 a month. I just checked this, in fact. (laughs) You could find two good roommates. And so now your rent is $333 a month. So add basic utilities and basic food. And now your cost of living is $800 a month. So the question is, assuming you also want to occasionally buy clothes or something, how do you make $1,000 a month? So no matter what your field is, you learn the holistic empathetic skills of marketing and sales. You learn communication and resourcefulness. And I'd add that you should learn at least a little computer programming because that often really stops people up. And then you just mix that together with whatever valuable thing you enjoy doing, right? So you like improving bicycles or baking with peanut butter or you want to breed puppies or help people get self-sufficient with solar power or whatever you enjoy doing. You mix together these skills of marketing, sales, communication, and just being resourceful with that. And you start to level up your skills. You know, you use the free resources online. You learn, build up your skills, you build your network of contacts, you build your reputation. And everything I've said so far, I think is a very viable way to live. And that whole time, you haven't had to do anything that doesn't make you happy, right? So I think even when you're doing something you don't love, 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 like doing sales, it's still net happiness because it's supporting your work that you like doing. So in my opinion, or from my perspective, I think this could go on indefinitely, that you could just keep earning more, saving more, and the whole time never doing anything that doesn't make you happy. So, I mean, I'm speaking from experience. This is what I did. (laughs) In fact, I was living in Queens, New York City, not Pittsburgh. But now Pittsburgh is the same cost of living as Queens was then. And that's what I did. I never did anything that didn't make me happy. So even later, when I was making millions, I still lived at my grandma's house for free. And I was still just driving my uncle's car that I borrowed because he wasn't using it. And I ate nothing but peanut butter sandwiches. So I got my happiness from my work. I loved what I was doing. So I didn't need to buy anything to be happy. All right, so my cost of living was so damn low that, yeah, I was making millions, but I was still living on basically $1,000 a month. So let's say that this whole scenario sounds too much of like the hustler lifestyle for you and you just want to get a happy job. So you can get a happy job as a forest ranger or a mailman or a bike messenger. You can be outside getting exercise, 
listening in your headphones to music or audiobooks, and you can make a decent living. As long as you keep your costs, I mean, your expenses low, you can live a basic living on being a forest ranger or a bike messenger, right? But, and you knew that this is what I was getting to, if you make expensive decisions in your life, if you spend $100,000 on a university, or if you spend $80,000 on a prestigious new car, or if you buy a $500,000 home so that your annual mortgage is $30,000, well, then you made the choice to do something very, very expensive. And you knew that to pay for this, you would have to do more than just what makes you happy. Like You chose to do work you don't like to do, and perhaps decades of work you don't like to do, to pay for this thing you wanted. So... When somebody says, oh man, I I can't just do what makes me happy, I think it's because you chose this trade-off to live an expensive life. So all in all, I'd say those expensive things were net negative happiness, right? Like they had some upsides, but the downsides go on for decades. And so it's net negative. But all that said, anybody can go back to scratch. Back to the beginning of my little tale here. You can sell everything you own and you can reverse your expensive mistakes if you've now decided that they were mistakes. So I think this is the main reason that you should never acclimate to luxury and stuff is so that at any point you can go back to living for $800 a month and then only do what makes you happy and be very, very careful for the devil's bargain, where something enticing up front has a huge price to pay down the line. Wow. So as you were (laughs) about one third of the way into that description, the word choice was popping into my head. And I think after hearing you lay out the entire philosophy, would it be accurate to say that perhaps you and I both share this opinion, people have choices that they simply do not recognize that they have. Yeah, I'm going to try not to go down the rabbit hole on this, but 15 years ago, I had a life coach type dude. He was brilliant. His name was Jared Rose. Unfortunately, he's not doing life coaching anymore, but he was great. And when I was still running CD Baby and I was feeling almost done, in fact, I should say I was already feeling done. I was feeling at my wit's end. He said something profound to me, which is, he said, you don't have to do anything. Because I was saying, well, you know, I have to do this, I have to do this. He goes, hold on, Derek, you don't have to do anything. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I have to pay my taxes, I have to pay my employees. And he said, no, you don't. He said, sorry, I need to stop here and make sure that you understand this point. You don't have to do anything. I said, hold on, I have to pay my taxes. He said, no, you don't. If you don't pay your taxes, then you know a few years later, the IRS will probably send somebody to your case and they'll make you pay or they'll threaten you with jail if you don't pay back taxes and interest. But you don't have to pay taxes. There will be consequences if you don't, and you could choose those consequences. But you, don't, you can't say that you have to do it. And I said, hmm, all right, but that's the IRS. That's you know a little disembodied. I have to pay my employees. And he said, no, you don't. If you stop playing them, they'll stop coming into work. (laughs) They'll grumble a bit and they'll stop showing up and they'll get a new job. I said, hmm, but I have to do it. And no matter what I said, he said, no, no, no. You don't have to do anything. You could, at this moment, just decide to go lay down in a park bench and just lay there for 20 years. 
And some consequences might pile up. Most of them would probably go away, but you could do this. And he said, we need to start with this as the baseline so that you never do this whiny thing saying you have to do something. No, you never have to do anything. You just have to think of the consequences if you don't. That is deep, deep, insightful advice. That is really, really great. And it applies to this stuff with, you know, when people say, oh, I can't afford to do only what I want. That's why I... I really do think in terms of going back to scratch, like, no, 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 you can just get a three-bedroom apartment in Pittsburgh, 333 a month plus food. There you go, 800 a month. Come on, there's something you can do that makes you happy for $800 a month. That flows very nicely into our next topic, which is about making decisions and taking advantage of these choices, some of which we can see, some of which we can't see. But when we're really paying attention, when we're truly paying attention to our lives and our opportunities and so forth. What does paying attention really mean to you as far as decisions, people, life opportunities, perceived dead ends, roads not taken, et cetera? Sorry, I think my answer might be shorter than the question itself. (laughs) Because for me, paying attention just means stopping to reflect and to consider other options. You could probably hear that in my tale, you know, I mean... I'm always the one reminding people when they say, I have to decide between these two choices. I say, no, no, no. There are always more than two options. (laughs) Let's add number three, go crazy. Let's add number four, do nothing. Let's add number five, you know, you're going to go dig ditches in St. Louis. Like, come on, have a little more creativity. There are always more than two options. So to me, paying attention just means stopping to reflect and considering other options. What a great episode. Wowza. Tell you what, if you want to ramp up your revenue as an expert who speaks professionally, you should really check out our free online training at doitmarketing.com slash webinar. Now you are a deep reflector because you even called yourself a pop philosopher. (laughs) These philosophies are in your podcast and your interviews and fantastic conversations like you and I are having and in books the books that are out and the books yet to be written. Talk a little bit, because I went to your website. We're going to link all of these things up right under this episode. But your website is sivers.org. And you talk about your latest book projects, your music and people, and the other book, Hell Yeah or No. And I'm looking on Amazon. (laughs) Derek, these books are not out yet, buddy. I'm not sure where these books are. Are they out? Are they for (laughs) friends only? Are they doing the kind of friends and family circuit? Are they going to be wrapped up in your next big book project, which is called Um, How to Live? What's going on? (laughs) To those of you listening, if you could see me, I am blushing right now because... uh, He is. He really is. I'm actually pretty embarrassed of this, that I finished writing the book Your Music and People two years ago now, and I had a wonderfully nerdy idea that I was going to crowdsource the translation of it into many different languages. And... If you search the web for something called yak shaving, I think that's what I did. It's something that programmers call yak shaving. I'm not going to retell the whole story now, but it's a metaphor for like kind of, you could call it like diving down the rabbit hole or falling down the rabbit hole more like, because I ended up spending months and months and months building this whole translation system. And then I finished writing my second book, Hell Yeah or No, while the first one was still being translated. And then I thought, well, as long as I'm having the first one translated, I want to have the second one translated. And then... 
I went down the rabbit hole of the book cover design and then how I was going to print it. And then I'm kind of opposed to proprietary software. So I didn't want to use Adobe InDesign to design the books. I insisted on using the open source latex thing, which is all nerdy. And so dove down that rabbit hole. And here I am two years later, Your Music and People and Hell Yeah or No are done. And they're going to be for sale any old day now on my site. And I'm still finishing writing my next book that I am so, so, so damn excited about called How to Live. But I don't have anything to say about that yet because it's not quite done yet. But that's why the books are announced, but not yet for sale. So maybe by the time you hear this, they will be. And I'm sorry it took so long. Wow. I think my next book has to be Shaving Your Yak. <laughs> I've never heard that. And I'm, I'm fairly oh, nerdy. Yeah. I'm not a programmer, but I'm in the tech world a little bit. And I've never heard that, but I, I got to bone up on it. Yeah, search the web for it because there, it's a funny tale that I would tell wrong if I tried, but it's basically like, you know, well, I did this, but then I had to paint my house. And so then I had to get a good brush and then I had to, and you end up like getting into shaving the yak to get the right kind of brush or something like that, which means yes. you've just really forgotten the whole point of why. Yes, yeah, so absolutely. That's what I did. And I'm embarrassed. Do you know the, uh, the chef Dan Barber? No. So Dan Barber runs a um, very successful restaurant called Blue Hill. And he's a maniac. He's a maniac. He says, okay, we need to source everything. Everything's organic. Everything's holistic, et cetera. Right. He couldn't find the right kind of pork. The way he tells it, he says, well, so now we're in the pig farming business. <laughs> exactly. He couldn't find the right kind of hay to feed these pigs. He's looking everywhere. No one had the right kind of hay. It was all processed. Uh... or all, you know, so he says, now we're in the hay business. <laughs> and it sounds like the yak shaving story. It is. God, I, I, I have something. Up. He's in... a maniac and he's a very <laughs> successful chef entrepreneur. I believe he's on the first season of Chef's Table. I think I need to make him an anti-role model. Yeah, yeah. He's just, <laughs> I think I have that tendency. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I would love to know at that moment when you sold the company, what was it like to be sitting on $22 million and never having to work again? What alternate universes opened for you? You said you were lost for a little bit after that for a year or two. What were some of the tempting roads not taken? And what was going through your mind during that transition period? Well, first to be clear, the $22 million never came to me. CD Baby was already making a net profit of $4 million a year at the time that I sold it. And I was the sole owner and I had no investors. I had plenty of money. So I didn't want the $22 million. So I structured the sale in such a way that I gave the company away to charity first before I sold it. So the $22 million went directly into a charitable trust and never touched my hands. And that was really important to me because I didn't want it. But you were but sitting on some large pile of savings because your overhead yeah. was so low. Although, you know what's really funny? I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly. There was eight months of time in between when I had a handshake deal for a 22 million amount and when the deal was all done. So I had eight months to kind of sit with this new reality. So I called a bunch of friends and I said like, what would you do with $22 million? And I probably asked like 15 or 20 different friends this question. And got a bunch of really cool answers and, uh, and a bunch of I don't knows. And then the funniest thing is I asked my lawyer, who at that point had become more of a friend than a lawyer. He was kind of like 80% friend. And, and every now and then we'd do a little contract work. But he had been a 
lawyer to a bunch of famous rock stars. He used to be the vice president of A&M Records and he was the vice president of Napster. And he had been around big money for a long time. So when I said, Milt, what would you do with $22 million? He goes, honestly, $22 million is not a lot of money. <laughs> and that was just his whole take on it. He's like, you could burn through that pretty fast if you're not careful, you know? And he had been around rock stars for 20 years, you know? So that was a really fun perspective. But no, when I did a lot of that uh, reflecting and soul searching, I realized that I just didn't want it. To answer your question, what was going through my head? I mean, first, thanks for asking, because it's a really weird experience to go through. I felt that I had too much freedom. Granted, this was, you know, at this time in my life too, it's like, I wasn't tied to anybody or anything or anywhere. So I could go anywhere and do anything. And just to emphasize that, I didn't have to be anywhere and I didn't have to do anything. I had no ties, no responsibilities. So it was the blank page problem. I was like, man, I could just go build bicycles in Brazil. I could just decide to go catch crabs in Croatia. Maybe I could just be an anthropologist. No, wait, I think I want to be a linguist. Uh, you know, I could just do anything anywhere. It was honestly overwhelming and it was paralyzing. But, um, you know, you asked earlier about goals. I think if this is the difference between goals versus interests, it would be interesting if we had an English word that meant a goal is like a plan that makes you take immediate action. Like if we had that as a single noun, a plan that makes you take immediate action, we could say that's a goal. Whereas an interest is something that might make you click and read for hours saying, huh, that's interesting, but not actually do anything about it. Right. So when I say that I felt lost for a year or two, it's because I spent a year or two just kind of paralyzed with all of these options and all of them were just an interest. Like, huh, yeah, I could do that. I'd you know, go read a few books about that. And I'd start to make plans about that. But just kind of, it stayed as an interest. But yeah, so that's, sorry, that I think when you have a lot of money and no ties, there's almost such a thing as too much freedom. But an, another interesting thing happened, or not happened, but a thought process happened, is my very first thought when I had this agreement to sell CD Baby, my very, very first thought, I'll never forget, is I thought, ooh, I'm dangerous now. Because now I can afford to go do things for free for musicians that other companies would have to charge money for, right? Like I still cared about my musician clients so much and I would see other companies ripping them off, right? Like there would be, you know, the John Lennon songwriting contest. Hey, everybody, everybody give us $100 to listen to your song and somebody will win $10,000, I'm like, ooh, you evil ripoff artists. You know, you're like taking $100 from thousands and thousands of people just to, you know, give some of it to one person. Oh, what a ripoff. And so I thought, man, I could destroy them because I can just do that all for free now. Like I could start something that the world needs and run it at a small loss indefinitely just because I want it to exist. So yeah, that was my very first thought. That's called the Robin Hood business model. <laughs> well, something like that. Or it's more like, it took me a couple of years after that before I used the word retired, but it's like, yeah, I can just do things because I want to now. I'm not doing anything for money. And so, in fact, I mean, I guess you could say that's what I'm still doing now with my writing and speaking and such is I do this all for free. 
I think only one time ever did I ever get paid for my public speaking. Instead, I, I would just say yes only to gigs that I would do for free because I wanted to be there anyway. And, you know, my friends are in the audience. So I honestly haven't earned hardly a dollar since 2008, since I sold the company. And I haven't even tried to. I just do this all for free because I can. It's not a bad gig. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's wonderful to not have to think how could I monetize this? I ended up just removing all analytics and everything from my site. It's just like, you know, I don't even care how many people see my site. I'm just doing this because I want to. I'm not doing it for the result. It's not a result-driven action. What a fantastic conversation. You're a tremendous human being. Do you know that? You <laughs> oh, really thanks, David. You, you asked me some wonderful questions that really uh, threw me down a, a wonderful thought process. So thank you for this conversation. So tell people how can they get connected and stay connected to more Derek Sivers brilliance? Where, <laughs> where can we send them? And these links will all be under this episode at thespeakingshow.com. There is only one. Just go to sivers.org, S-I-V-E-R-S dot O-R-G. That's my site. I like to just keep everything on my site. I'm kind of old school like that. I don't really do social media. So my ask of the audience is, because I don't do anything for money anymore, what I really like is meeting people. I love when people email me and introduce themselves. That is my favorite thing. So anyone listening to this, please go to sivers.org and click contact. You'll see my email address and send me a little email and say hello. And you do have some cool things up there. I mean, we should tell people you've got a cool blog. You've got your kind of now updates of what you're working on. You've got the podcast happening. So lots of cool things and lots of ways to keep tabs on your adventures in addition to emailing you and contacting you to say <laughs> hello and to introduce themselves. Well, Derek Sivers, it's a complete and wonderful pleasure. Thank you for being on with us. Thanks, David. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Speaking Show. Hey, tell you what, if you like us, rate us and review us on iTunes. Subscribe, tell a friend. Go grab the notes and downloads and extras at thespeakingshow.com. See you next time.